0: Section 17 of Philosophy of the Plan of Salvation by James Barr Walker. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 17 Concerning the Design and the Importance of the Means of Grace. 1. Prayer. It has been shown that, constituted as we are, the manifestations made of the character and attributes of God in the Scriptures are adapted to produce the greatest good in the human spirit. AND, IN ORDER THAT THAT GOOD MAY BE EFFECTED, IT IS NECESSARY THAT THE TRUTHS OF THE SCRIPTURE BE BROUGHT INTO CONTACT WITH THE SOUL, THAT IT MAY BE IMPRESSED AND INFLUENCED BY THEM. THE TRUTHS AND MANIFESTATIONS OF REVELATION ARE THE ELEMENTS OF MORAL POWER, WHICH, APPREHENDED BY FAITH, ARE EFFECTIVE IN PURIFYING THE FOUNTAIN OF LIFE IN THE SOUL, AND IN RECTIFYING AND REGULATING ITS EXERCISES it follows therefore that the requirement to bring those truths before the mind in a particular manner would be a duty necessarily connected with the revelation of the doctrines as directions for taking the medicine are connected with the prescription of a physician into whose hands a patient has submitted himself NOW PRAYER OR WORSHIP IS ONE METHOD BY WHICH THE TRUTHS AND MANIFESTATIONS OF REVELATION ARE DIRECTLY BROUGHT BEFORE THE CONTEMPLATION OF THE SOUL. PRAYER BRINGS THE MIND TO THE IMMEDIATE CONTEMPLATION OF GOD'S CHARACTER AND HOLDS IT THERE TILL BY COMPARISON AND ASPIRATION THE BELIEVER'S SOUL IS PROPERLY IMPRESSED AND HIS WANTS PROPERLY FELT. THE MORE SUBTLE PHYSICAL PROCESSES AND AFFINITIES BECOME the better are the analogies which they furnish of processes in the spiritual world. The influence of believing prayer has a good analogy in the recently discovered daguerreotype. By means of this process, the features of natural objects are thrown upon a sensitive sheet through a lens, and leave their impression upon that sheet. So when the character of God is, by means of prayer, brought to bear upon the mind of the believer, that mind being rendered sensitive by the holy spirit it impresses there the divine image in this manner the image of christ is formed in the soul the existence of which the scriptures represent as inspiring the believer with the hope of glory in the introductory chapter it was shown that the impulse which leads men to worship proves a curse to the soul where the objects worshipped are unholy and that the only remedy for the evil was the revelation of a holy object for the supreme homage of the human soul. So soon as a righteous and benevolent God is presented before the mind, then prayer becomes a blessing instead of a curse to the soul. Look at the object in the form of a syllogism. Man, by worshipping, becomes assimilated to the moral character of the object he worships. The God of the Bible, as manifest in Christ Jesus, is the only perfectly righteous and perfectly benevolent being ever worshipped by man. Therefore, man can become righteous and benevolent in no other way than by that worship which will assimilate him to the God of the Bible. And further, as it has been demonstrated that righteousness and benevolence produce the rectitude and the happiness, the greatest good, of the soul. Man can gain the great end of his being only by that worship which assimilates his nature to the moral image of God. It follows, therefore, that prayer is a necessary and important means of grace, a duty growing out of the nature of the case, and a duty upon which depends, in great measure, the well-being of the human spirit. The Apostle understood the philosophy of this subject when he said, but we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Quote. Therefore it is that the commandment that men should pray is presented in the Bible in every variety of language, and it is constantly repeated by the inspired writers and by the Son of God Himself, who commended by His precepts and example private, social, and public prayer, and who taught by a parable that men ought always to pray and not to faint. The Importance of Strong Desire in Importunity in Prayer It is impossible to produce grateful feelings by granting a benefit for which the recipient has no desire. If a child asked for bread when it was not hungry, and if, while the child had no feeling of want, its unfelt request was answered by its father, it could neither appreciate the gift nor be grateful for it. The soul is so constituted, as has been fully shown, that it must really feel the need of the benefit before it can appreciate its importance or be grateful for the favour received. So it is in the case of the suppliant in prayer, if he has an anxious desire, a spirit of importunate solicitude, FOR THE BLESSING WHICH HE ASKS, WHEN HE RECEIVES IT, GRATITUDE AND PRAISE WILL, AS THE CONSEQUENCE OF GRATIFIED DESIRE, SPRING UP IN THE HEART. NOW, MARK, IF THERE WAS NOT A FEELING OF IMPORTUNATE DESIRE IN THE MIND OF THE SUPPLIANT, GOD COULD NOT BE GLORIFIED NOR THE CREATURE BENEFITED BY AN ANSWER TO PRAYER. GOD COULD NOT BE GLORIFIED BECAUSE HIS GOODNESS WOULD NOT BE FELT AND ACKNOWLEDGED IN THE ANSWER. And the creature could not be benefited because it is the feeling of gratitude and praise in his own heart which constitutes the spiritual blessing, so far forth as the suppliant himself is concerned. And this exercise is never produced only in so far as it is preceded by independent and anxious desire for the blessing sought. When the supplication is for spiritual blessing upon another individual, two minds are blessed by the answer the individual prayed for, and the individual who prays. And if a thousand individuals desired spiritual mercies for that soul, God would be glorified by a thousand hearts, and a thousand hearts would be reciprocally blessed by the answer. The time may come when all the angels in heaven, and all the saints upon earth, will be blessed by mercy bestowed upon a single individual, when the last unregenerated sinner stands in solitary and awful rebellion upon the earth, should tidings be circulated through earth and heaven that he had submitted himself to God, and that his affections began to take hold on Christ, every being in the universe, who had strongly desired the conversion of that last sinner, would feel the thrill of glory to God and goodwill to men arise in his soul. It follows, therefore, that a fervent, importunate state of mind is, from the nature of the case, necessary in order that God may be glorified and man blessed by the duty of prayer. It was in view of these constitutional principles that Jesus constantly taught the necessity of desire and importunity, in order that mercies might be received in answer to the supplication of saints. Footnote. Matthew 5, 6 luke eleven five to ten and eighteen one to fourteen and a footnote the importance of faith and a spirit of dependence upon god as concomitants of acceptable prayer the necessity of faith as a primary element in all acceptable religious exercises has already been noticed a feeling of entire dependence upon god for spiritual mercies is the only right feeling because it is the only true feeling. As a matter of fact, the soul is entirely dependent upon god for spiritual mercies. Truth therefore requires that our dependence should be acknowledged and felt. But further, without faith in god as the immediate bestower of mercies in answer to prayer, he would not be honored for blessings received. Suppose two individuals desired with equally strong feelings the same blessing, and that both received it. Each would rejoice alike in its reception. But suppose there was this difference in their state of mind. One regarded the blessing as coming immediately from God in answer to prayer, the other did not. The result would be that the one who had faith in God would be filled with love to his Maker for the mercy. The other would rejoice in himself, or at least he would not rejoice in God in the one case god would be honoured and praised for his acts of grace in the other he would neither be honoured nor loved for his goodness we do not present this illustration as applicable in all its bearings because we do not suppose that the unregenerate ever truly desire spiritual blessing till they are convicted of sin but it will make the point clear to the reason of every one that god cannot be honoured without faith AND THEREFORE WITHOUT FAITH IT IS IMPOSSIBLE TO PLEASE HIM." Quote. IT IS NECESSARY, ACCORDING TO THE FOREGOING VIEW OF THE SUBJECT, IN ORDER TO OFFER ACCEPTABLE PRAYER, THAT MEN SHOULD POSSESS A SPIRIT OF FAITH AND DEPENDENCE UPON CHRIST. THE PRINCIPLE UPON WHICH CHRIST ACTED IN RELATION TO THIS SUBJECT, AS WELL AS HIS INSTRUCTION CONCERNING THE DUTY OF PRAYER, FULLY CONFIRM THE PRECEDING THOUGHTS he seldom performed an act of mercy by miracle or otherwise unless those who received the mercy could see the hand of god in the blessing if thou canst believe thou mayest be cleansed was his habitual sentiment as if he had said your desire for the blessing is manifest by your urgent requests now if you can have faith to see god in the blessing so that he will be honored and praised for conferring it, I will grant it. But if you have no faith, you can receive no favor. And again, in order that the believer might be brought into a state of dependence, and have his faith quickened every time that he presented his supplications to God, Jesus said, looking forward to the time when he would have perfected his ministry in atonement, Hereafter ye shall ask me nothing but whatsoever ye ask the Father in my name, quote. that is, depending on me, the atoning interceding Saviour, he will do it. Quote. And in another place he promised, Whatsoever ye ask the Father in my name, I will do it. Thus does the instruction of the Saviour, make the believer entirely dependent upon himself when he approaches the mercy seat of the Most High. As the Jews were constantly to call to mind the deliverance from Egypt, in order that their feelings might be moved to love, dependence, and faith towards their temporal deliverer, so the Christian is to call to mind the deliverance from spiritual bondage, by the sacrifice of Christ, in order that they may realize their dependence, and be inspired with a spirit of faith and love towards their spiritual deliverer. And because believers can thus depend upon Christ, and feel the mercy of God as it is manifested in the atonement, they are constituted quote, priests to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. End quote. 2. Praise the truth which has been demonstrated in previous chapters is again assumed that the manifestations of god in christ jesus would when brought into efficient contact with the soul produce that active holiness in the heart which is man's greatest good and as the end to be accomplished depends under god on those truths which are developed in the great plan of mercy being impressed upon the mind and the heart it follows that those means would be used, which, from their nature, are best adapted to give influence and impressiveness to the great truths of revelation. The influence of music upon the emotions of the soul is well known to every one. There is in souls a sympathy with sounds. Quote. The soul is awakened and invited by the spirit of the melody to receive the sentiment uttered in the song sweet affecting music not the tone of the piano nor the peals of the organ but a melodious air sung by strong and well-disciplined voices and accompanied by the flute and viol such music reaches the fountains of thought and feeling and untwisting all the links that tie the hidden soul of harmony it tinges the emotions with its own hues whether plaintive or joyous and it fosters in the heart the sentiment which it conveys, whether it be the love of country or of God, admiration of noble achievement, or of devoted and self-sacrificing affection. The power of music to fix in the memory the sentiment with which it is connected, and to foster it in the heart, has been understood in all ages of the world. Some of the early legislators wrote their laws in verse, and sung them in public places, and many of the earliest sketches of primitive history are in the measures of lyric poetry. In this manner the memory was aided in retaining the facts, the ear was invited to attend to them, imagination threw around them the drapery of beauty, dignity, or power, and then music conveyed the sentiment, and mingled it with the emotions of the soul. IT WAS IN VIEW OF THE POWER OF MUSIC, WHEN UNITED WITH SENTIMENT ADAPTED TO AFFECT THE HEART, THAT ONE HAS SAID, PERMIT ME TO WRITE THE BALLADS OF A NATION, AND I CARE NOT WHO MAKES HER LAWS. WHEN THE EFFECTS OF MUSIC AND POETRY UPON THE SOUL ARE CONSIDERED, WE CAN PERCEIVE THEIR IMPORTANCE AS A MEANS OF FOSTERING THE CHRISTIAN VIRTUES IN THE SOUL OF THE BELIEVER. They should be used to convey to the mind sublime and elevating conceptions of the attributes of Jehovah, to impress the memory with the most affecting truths of revelation, and especially to cherish in the heart tender and vivid emotions of love to Christ, in view of the manifestations of divine justice and mercy exhibited in his ministry, his passion, and his sacrifice. Footnote. THE PROPER DRAPERY FOR MUSIC IS TRUTH. IT IS ITS ONLY APPAREL, WHETHER AS APPLIES TO GOD OR AS USED IN THE CULTIVATION OF MAN. EURASMUS. THERE CANNOT BE FOUND, IN ALL THE RESOURCES OF THOUGHT, MATERIAL WHICH WOULD FURNISH SENTIMENT FOR MUSIC SO SUBDUING AND OVERPOWERING AS THE HISTORY OF REDEMPTION. THERE IS THE LIFE OF JESUS, a series of acts godlike in their benevolence, connected at times with exhibitions of divine power and of human character in their most affecting aspects. And as the scenes of Christ's eventful ministry converge to the catastrophe, there is the tenderness of his love for his disciples. The Last Supper, the scene in Gethsemane, the Mediator in the Hall of Judgment, exhibiting the dignity of truth and conscious virtue— amidst the tempest of human passion by which he is surrounded then the awful moral and elemental grandeur of the crucifixion the saviour nailed to the cross by his own creatures crying father forgive them for they know not what they do and then while darkness shrouds the sun and nature through all her works gives signs of woe he cries it is finished and gave up the ghost thus did the dark stream of human depravity roll till a rainbow broke upon its gloom which spanned the portals of the saviour's tomb such exhibitions of sublimity and power when clothed with the influence of music and impressed upon a heart rendered sensitive by divine influence are adapted to make the most abiding and blessed impressions my heart awake to feel is to be fired and to believe lorenzo is to feel it follows from the preceding views that in selecting the means to impress the mind with religious truth and the heart with pious sentiment music and poetry should not be neglected there is not in nature another means which would compensate for the loss of their influence we do not mean to say that their influence is as great as some other means in impressing the truths of revelation upon the soul but their influence is peculiar and delightful and without it the system of means would not be perfect we see therefore the reasons why music and poetry were introduced as a means of impressing revealed truth both under the old and the new dispensations moses not only made the laws but he made likewise the songs of the nation. These songs, in some instances, all the people were required to learn, in order that their memory might retain, and their heart feel, the influence of the events recorded in their national anthems. Music held a conspicuous place in the worship of the temple, and under the new dispensation it is sanctioned by the express example of Jesus, and specifically commanded by the apostles. The example is given in connection with the institution of the Eucharist, which was to commemorate the most affecting scene in the history of God's love. And the command is in such words as indicate the effects of music upon the heart, quote, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things, Unto God and the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. End quote. Upon this subject, as upon some others, the apostolic churches fell into some abuses. Yet the high praises of God and the Lamb have always been celebrated in poetry and music by the Church of Christ. One of the first notices of the Christians by pagan writers speaks of them as quote, singing a hymn to Christ as to a God. End quote. Thus showing that the principles established in the preceding views were recognized by the early disciples, who used music as a means of fostering in their hearts love to the Saviour. As in the case of the primitive Christians, so every regenerated heart delights in such spiritual songs as speak of Christ as an atoning Saviour. And those only are qualified to write hymns for the Church whose hearts are affected by the love of Jesus. On this account, some of the hymns of Cowper, Charles Wesley, Watts, and Newton will last while the church on earth lasts, and perhaps longer. Thousands of Christian hearts have glowed with emotion while they sung. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Or, Rock of Ages, cleft for me let me hide myself in thee. Thousands have been awakened to duty and to prayer by that solemn hymn, Lo, on a narrow neck of land, twixt two unbounded seas I stand, yet how insensible! And it would not have been possible for any but a Christian poet to have written the lines, Her noblest life my spirit draws from his dear wounds and bleeding side. 3. Preaching. It has been said that the truths and manifestations of revelation are the elements of moral power, which being brought into efficient contact with the soul, are effective in rectifying and regulating its exercises. A medicine may be prepared in which are inherent qualities adapted to remove a particular disease, but in order to the accomplishment of its appropriate effect it must be brought to act upon the body of the patient. And if the disease has rendered the patient not only unconscious of his danger, but has induced upon him a deep lethargy of mind, it would be necessary that the physician should arouse his dormant faculties, in order that he might receive the medicine which would restore him to health. So with the moral diseases of the soul, the attention and sensibilities of men must be awakened, in order that the truth may affect their understanding, their conscience, and their heart. Whatever, therefore, is adapted to attract the attention, and move the sensibilities at the same time that it conveys truth to the mind, would be a means peculiarly efficient to impress the gospel upon the soul. There are but two avenues through which moral truth reaches the soul— and there are but two methods by which it can be conveyed through those avenues. By the living voice, truth is communicated through the ear, and by the signs of language it is communicated through the eye. The first of these methods, the living voice, has many advantages over all other means in conveying and impressing truth. It is necessary that an individual should read with ease in order to be benefited by what he reads the efforts which a bad reader has to make both disincline him to the task of reading and hinder his appreciation of truth. Besides, a large portion of the human family cannot read, but all can understand their own language when spoken. In order, therefore, that the whole human family might be instructed, the living speaker would be the first and best and natural method. The living speaker has power to arrest attention, to adapt his language and illustrations to the character and occupation of his audience, and to accompany his communications with those emotions and gestures which are adapted to arouse and impress his hearers. It is evident from these considerations that among the means which God would appoint to disseminate his truth through the world, the living teacher would hold a first and important place this result is in conformity with the arrangements of jesus he appointed a living ministry endowed them with the ability to speak the languages of other nations and commissioned them to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature in connection with this subject there is one other inquiry of importance it concerns not only the harmony of the gospel system with the nature of things but likewise the harmony of apostolic practice with what has been shown to be necessary in order that the truths of the gospel might produce their legitimate effect upon the mind. It has been demonstrated that a sense of man's guilt and danger must exist in the mind, before there can be gratitude and love to the being who removes the guilt and rescues from the danger. It has likewise been noticed, as a self-evident principle, that before repentance, there must be conviction of sin. A sense of guilt and error must necessarily precede reformation of life. A man cannot conscientiously turn from a course of life and repent of past conduct unless he sees and feels the error and the evil of that course from which he turns. To suppose that a man would turn from a course of life which he neither thought nor felt to be wrong or dangerous is to suppose an absurdity. It follows, therefore, that the preacher's first duty in endeavoring to reclaim men to holiness and to God would be, in all cases, to present such truths as were adapted to convict their hearers of their spiritual guilt and danger. As God has constituted the mind, repentance from sin and attainment to holiness would forever be impossible on any other conditions but the same truths would not convict all men of sin. In order to convict any particular man, or class of men, of sin, those facts must be fastened upon with which they have associated the idea of moral good and evil, and concerning which they are particularly guilty. Thus, in the days of the apostles, the Gentiles could not be convicted of sin for rejecting and crucifying Christ, but it being a fact in the case of the jews that all their ideas of good and evil both temporal and spiritual were associated with the messiah nothing in all the catalogue of guilt would be adapted to convict them of sin so powerfully as the thought that they had despised and crucified the messiah of god on the other hand the heathen upon whom the charge of rejecting christ would have no influence could be convicted of sin only by showing them the falsehood and folly of their idolatry the holy character of the true god and the righteous and spiritual nature of the law which they were bound to obey and by which they would finally be judged the first preachers of the gospel therefore in conformity with these principles would aim first and directly to convince their hearers of their sins and in accomplishing this end they would fasten upon those facts which the guilt of their hearers more particularly consisted. And then, when men were thus convicted of their guilt, the salvation through Christ from sin and its penalty would be pressed upon their anxious souls, and they would be taught to exercise faith in Jesus as the meritorious cause of life, pardon, and happiness. Now the apostolical histories fully confirm the fact that this course— the only one consistent with truth, philosophy, and the nature of man, was the course pursued by the primitive preachers. The first movement after they were endowed with the gift of tongues and filled with the Holy Ghost was the sermon by Peter on the day of Pentecost, in which he directly charged the Jews with the murder of the Messiah, and produced in thousands of minds conviction of the most pungent and overwhelming description at athens paul in preaching to the gentiles pursued a different course he exposed their folly of their idolatry by appealing to their reason and their own acknowledged authorities he spoke to them of the guilt which they would incur if they refused under the light of the gospel to forsake the errors which god on account of past ignorance had overlooked he then closed by turning their attention to the righteous retributions of the eternal world, and to the appointed day when men would be judged by Jesus Christ according to his gospel. The manner in which the apostles presented Christ crucified to the penitent and convicted sinner as the object of faith and the means of pardon and the hope of glory is abundantly exhibited in the Acts of the Apostles and in their several epistles to the churches. Thus did God, by the appointment of the living preacher as a means of spreading the gospel, adapt himself to the constitution of his creatures, and the apostles, moved by divine guidance, likewise adapted the truth which they preached to the peculiar necessities and circumstances of men. End of section 17